With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. How do you do? Jen and Cam feel it would be unkind to present this program without a friendly word of warning. We are about to unfold our true crime podcast. A podcast of lifelong friends who seek to examine crimes which were committed without reckoning upon God. The discussion will be frank, and the subject matter will be of a grim and violent nature. I think it will thrill you. It might even horrify you. So, if there are young children listening, or if you feel unwilling to subject your nerves to such a strain, now is your chance to... Well, we've warned you. Hey, Jen. Hey, Cam. How are you? I'm pretty darn good, considering. How are you? I'm here. I'm That's... I'm here in my pajamas and on a Saturday morning, so it's not too bad. Yeah, not too I bad. I keep thinking it's Sunday, but it's not. It's Saturday, isn't it? Because this no. is usually our Sunday thing. But that's okay. Hmm. It's all, all good. Right. It is. All right. Yeah, it is. You got a good case for us? I do. I do. Um Ooh, good. Let me just preface this by saying I know I'm going to mess up some names here, mm-hmm. and I apologize for that. It's kind and of it, our thing, y'all. It is. It is. I know, and I apologize. I do the best I can. Also. As we go through this, just think about forensics and thank goodness for them, because if forensics weren't around when this happened, not one, but two people probably would have been falsely confused, falsely accused, not confused. Camille's falsely confused. Jennifer's falsely confused. But there's no falsely about it. Falsely accused and would be sitting in jail. Prison, actually. So anyway, here we go. You ready? Yep. So 19-year-old Sonia Ivanhoff was a standout in her small community of Nome, Alaska. Now, by standout, I mean people knew her. They all knew her from the small town. Mm-hmm. The community is just over 3,000 people, so we're, it's pretty tiny, okay? A stellar basketball player. Everybody knew Sonia, right? So Sonia had moved to Nome about two years prior to this happening, and she'd made quite a name for herself on the basketball court in high school. And let's be honest, you know, in a tiny town, sports is a big deal. Friday night, your team's doing pretty good. A lot of the town folk will show up at the game, right? And that's exactly what the case was. So most of the small town knew Sonia. They were pretty familiar with her. She was also very tall because, you know, she played basketball. 
Now, she had moved to Nome from a nearby village just two years earlier, and the name of the village was, and this is probably going to mess up, Una Laclete. Ooh, I think I did that right. And that small village only had right under 700 people. So I guess to her, the 3,000, that was pretty good. That was, you know, a bigger city for her, if you will. Now, Sonia was coming into her own, and she was working at Norton Sound Regional Hospital, and she was trying to build a little nest egg for herself and go off to college. She was 19, but she was working, lived with her very best friend, you know, having a good time as a teenager, young woman would do, right? Mm -hmm. So on the evening of August 10th, 2003, Sonia and her very best friend and roommate went out to have some fun. They went to a friend's house, went to a tavern, had some drinks, played some games at the friend's house, all that stuff. Well, her roommate had to work really early in the morning, so she excused herself and went home. But Sonia decided she was going to walk on and go to like a nearby tavern, have a nightcap or whatever. Now, Again, this is a tiny town in Alaska, for goodness sakes. So I would say it's pretty darn safe. I mean, minus the bears, right? So the two parted at around midnight and the roommate went home, went to bed. When she woke up the next morning, Sonia was not at home. And that was odd because Sonia was very, very responsible. She wasn't going to be home. She would have left a note or called her roommate to tell her. So she started to worry a little bit, but she went ahead, went to work. And when she got to work, she started calling their friends to see if anybody had heard from Sonia. And nobody had. After Sonia's roommate got home from work and Sonia was still not home, she was becoming frantic. She called Sonia's parents. She called Sonia's sister. She was calling everybody to find out what had happened to Sonia. Now, Sonia's 19. It's a small community. So you're probably thinking, you know, maybe she just, maybe she got a little drunk, hung over, stayed somewhere, whatever. So she waited until the next morning. And right now it's approaching, you know, it's going on two days of missing, the second day of her being gone all day. Mm -hmm. And she went to the police department to file a missing persons report. Again, Thinking, you know, 3,000 people, that's half the size of what we grew up in. And we grew up in a small town, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Like everybody knows each other. So you would. Yeah, it's just tiny. And, you know, where I was thinking, like, when I was writing this and where we grew up, and I was like, well, Lord, how many taverns did we have? And I think at best count, we had three. And so this is half that. that size, right? The police launch a search to search for Sonia. Sadly, it would only take about three hours before one of the volunteer searchers would locate Sonia Ivanov's body. Sonia was lying naked in some brush. Her clothes had been removed, except one sock had remained on her. Officers spread out and collect anything and everything that may or may not be related to the crime. At this point, they don't know. They discover some tire prints in mud located right off the road. And it looks like there is sort of like congealed blood in those prints. Mm -hmm. Now, since the department is so small, and by small, Jen, I mean seven officers, Mm -hmm. they're not exactly great at handling murder investigations because they don't really have them there. So they call in the Alaska Bureau of Investigation, who would send a criminologist there the following day. Now, the officers knew that they needed to make sure the crime scene was not disturbed until the specialist could get there. So the police chief and 28-year-old officer, Matthew Owens, agree to stay at the site all night long and stand guard, basically. They wanted to make sure no animals would interfere or people Uh or anybody else, frankly. So Alaska crime scene investigator Carrie Cathcart arrived the following day, and she would take some photos, 
and collect and preserve all the evidence that they could find at the scene. Now, the location where Sonia was found was a desolate road. I think it was an old mining road, like a road that you would take to a mine shaft. And it didn't go all the way through. It was a dead end. There was like a little area at the end in which you could turn around. Now, growing up in a small town, we all know that once in a while, the kids would venture out there to that road to party or do whatever kids do in cars late at night. But it wasn't populated at all, and it was a little bit difficult to find. Carrie tested the substance found in the tire tracks, and it did test positive for blood. The investigator makes a plaster cast of the tire prints, and they believe that Sonia was either murdered in the automobile and that her blood had pooled in the tire track as her body was taken out of the car, and then she was also dragged through the brush and then stripped of her clothing. They came up with that because she didn't have scratch marks on her body, and had she been naked, it would have obviously left some marks on her body as she was pulled through the weeds, right? Gotcha. Okay. I would think so. Sonia did have some bruising on her cheek area, and at this point, they couldn't tell what her cause of death was. They had left her out there all night, remember, and the police Mm -hmm. officer stood guard. So after the investigator, Carrie Cathcart, was on scene and was able to take all the photos, they were now ready to take her body. As they moved her, they could tell immediately how she had been killed. She had been shot in the head. However, there was not a weapon located in or around the area. Also, her clothes were gone. Her clothes had been all gone, minus that one sock. A later autopsy would reveal it was a 32 caliber pistol, and she was shot pretty much point blank. She had not been sexually assaulted. Officers were able to locate a broken branch near the crime scene, and it had blue paint on it, like blue paint residue, as if somebody had driven past the branch and broke it and some of the paint had been left behind. So they believe that this has to be the paint from the car or truck that was on scene dumping her body or killing her, right? They collect it for analysis. At this point, this isn't a whole lot to go on, right? They have a body with one sock. They know she's been shot. They have a broken branch, and they have some tire marks with what they believe is blood. The lab reports come back, and the blue paint that is on the branch turns out to be a standard blue color, and it's used on many trucks and SUVs. And the tire marks revealed that the automobile or car that had made those marks had three of the same brand tires and one of a different brand. So, you know, how hard could that be to find, right? Well, you'd be surprised, as we'll find out later. Officers, as they always do, start with the inner circle, and they interview all of Sonia's friends. One of her friends floats to the top. A friend of hers by the name of Andrew Donnelly, he goes by the name Donnie, apparently had a little bit of a crush on Sonia. So officers Mm -hmm. pull Donnie in for questioning and find out that Donnie was a bit sweet on Sonia. But he was not in town. He was actually out hunting with friends about 70 miles away. So, okay, he seems to have an alibi, you know, stating he was not in town. He couldn't have done this. So they go ahead and pull in some of his friends. His friends do say, yes, Donnie was with us hunting. But the only thing is, is that Donnie was in a different tent. He was in a different cabin by himself. So So there's nobody to watch him. He went to bed with us and he woke up with us. But we cannot state definitely that he was in there the whole time because we can't be sure. So police are like, okay, okay, we see. So they get a search warrant and they head over to Donnie's house to see if they can find anything. 
Well, the search did not disappoint. Police locate a pair of tennis shoes with what looks like blood all over them. They also go to his garage. And they're out hunting, right, you said? Mm -hmm. Yep. Okay. All right. They also go to his garage, and they find out he has a blue truck in the garage with the tarp in the back. So they, you know, unfold the tarp, and there's blood or a substance that looks remarkably like blood on the tarp. Okay. They test it. It does test positive for blood. Presumptive positive, to be specific. They sprayed the tires with fluorescein, which is like luminol, and it detects trace amounts of blood. It also, and I thought this was sort of fascinating because, of course, I had to look this up. It's also used to detect eye injuries. And so I guess it shows up scratches in your cornea and things like that. So I'm kind of wondering if this is similar to the yellow dye that dilates your eyes. I don't know. Huh. I didn't get that far. I don't but know. Anyway. So it what's is, it called again? Fluorescein, like fluorescent. Fluorescein. Scene. So both the tarp and the tires glow with light, letting the officers know that this is, in fact, blood. The tarp tested positive for blood, as did his tires. Now, another little interesting thing is that the uh, tires, yeah, three are of the same brand and one is different. Also inside is some hunting rifles. But, you know, he's in Alaska. I mean, I, I would assume he would have hunting rifles in there. And on the hunting rifles, it looks again like there's blood. They test it on site, and yes, it comes up with blood. So at this point, things are not looking too good for old Donnie, right? Mm-hmm. So we're, you know, police are pretty sure that Donnie's their guy. At this point, Donnie is, he's hysterical, and he's saying he did not hurt Sonia. He did not have anything to do with that. He was out hunting, and instead, he killed a porcupine, and he put it in the tarp in the back of his truck. Okay, that's a little weird, but okay. I mean, Alaska, again. So they ask People him about have weird things they that, do. That, right? Yeah. I would be interested to keep a porcupine. I think that would be kind of cool. But whatever. I wouldn't touch it because it'd be dead and bloody. And that's gross. But he also ran over a rabbit. And that's where he says that the blood on his shoes, he actually ran over it with his truck. That's how the blood got on the tires. And he got out to check to see if the bunny had crossed the rainbow bridge. And the uh-huh. rabbit was still alive and suffering. So I regret to say he did step on the rabbit to end its suffering, hence how he got blood on his tennis shoes. Now, all right, story seems a little out there, right? But, you know, it happens. It happens. It's Alaska. Things are a little different there. Right. So the police are like, sure, buddy. Sure. We'll we'll get back to you and let you know what the lab results say. Well, sure enough, it came back. All of that was blood, but it was animal blood. It was not human blood. The paint swatch actually came back, too. And even though Donnie's truck was blue, it was a whole different color blue. It did not match the blue that was found on the branch. That paint did not come from his truck either. Got you. So Donnie seems like he's in the clear. Officers are back to square one. And they gather a group together, volunteer. They need her clothes. So they're going to go search the city dump, which that would just be terrible. Ugh, gross. Uh, mm-hmm. Right? Ugh. So they're hoping if they can find her clothes, that that could lead to some evidence, maybe some fiber evidence, some blood evidence, whatever, and that could lead them to the killer. After an extensive search, they leave empty-handed. And now, four weeks in, they were beginning to become frustrated. They're beginning to lose hope that they're ever going to figure this out. They're frustrated, that is, until a phone call comes in and would change everything. Told you, that's one of my standard lines. <laughs> right? Yeah, it, <laughs> it really is. Ah, so true, though. 
So the phone call comes in, not one thing changes. The person didn't have anything to say. I mean, come on now, right? A woman by the name of Florence Habros calls in and tells police that she and her sister were outside their mom's home that very night, about 1.30 in the morning, when they saw a young woman walking on the sidewalk. It's raining out, so they kind of paid attention because it's 1.30, it's raining, mm-hmm. right? Well, the little sister knew immediately who that was and even said to her sister Florence, that's Sonia Ivanov. Seems Florence's little sister knew all about the basketball player because she'd actually heard how good she was and had just recently went to a local league team game and watched Sonia play to see her on the court. So she knew immediately that's Sonia Ivanov, right? So mm-hmm. a little small town celebrity, if you will. So the two waved to her and they said hi as Sonia walked past them. Now they continued to watch her walk and she continued on about a block past them and they notice a police car pulls over and after a quick chat, they watch Sonia get into the officer's car and drive off, noting that the car was not going in the direction of where Sonia lived. And th- that was so noteworthy to them. That's when they looked at their watch and knew that it was about 1.30. That's how come they, they knew the time on that. Makes sense. Uh, right. Also, it's a little, depending on the article you read and whatever, it's important to note here that Florence claims and her sister claims that number one, Sonia was not drunk at all because they kind of talked to her and they were watching her walk. And they, the two of them had not drank anything that night either, right? One's still in high school, by the way, the little one. But also that they had called the police department right after they heard Sonia went missing, right? And they didn't do anything about it. Just Really? Just putting that out there, right? Because she, she did get into a police officer's car and there's only seven police officers <laughs> on staff. So she huh. that hard. Yeah. Hmm. So they look into records to find out which two officers were working that night. And it turns out it was Officer Paul Souza and Officer Matthew Owens. Now, Paul Souza was a part time ref and even refed at some of Sonia's games. He did that to pick up some extra money. So they knew that he was a part time referee at some of the local basketball games. Now, Matt Owens was a firearms expert who had been with the department about three years. He had moved from Florida to Alaska, which I thought, wow, that's got to be a huge adjustment, a huge adjustment, uh, <laughs> right? A sh- totally huge adjustment. I mean, it really does. Uh, Florida to Alaska, sunny to whatever. Both officers had great reputations and both had been working around the clock on the murder of Sonia. Both officers also swear that neither of them picked up Sonia that night. At this point, Jen... We either have witnesses that were mistaken or we have somebody lying. Uh, probably maybe a little bit of both. Because it's true. I'm crime. just edging my bets there. I, yeah. I, I got you. Now it's about 26 days since Sonia was found murdered and the Alaska State Police come in on the case. They bring them in because apparently Gnome's not doing so well breaking this case. First up, both officers need to account for where they were at 1.30 that rainy, drizzly August night. Paul Souza informs them that he was in the station for most of the night writing up a report, but not all of the night. And he can't quite account for when he was and when he wasn't. He just kind of knew that he was in there for a large portion of his shift writing up a report. That doesn't help him a lot. Now, Matt Owens states he was outside a local tavern, making sure it closed on time. However, when investigators went to talk to some of the patrons who were at that bar that night, they do recall seeing him outside the bar, but they said it was about 2 a.m. 
It was not 1.30. Okay. Okay. At this point, both officers are asked to go to Anchorage, fly down to Anchorage, and take polygraphs. Both of them, sure, we are totally going to do that. They're totally going to fly down there, Jen, because they, they want to help this case, right? Mm-hmm. However, there's a little small issue, or a big one, if you will. It's about eight hours before both men would jump on a plane and venture to Anchorage to take the lie box test when police car 321 is stolen right out of the police car parking lot. Huh. Pretty brave, right? I mean, pretty brave <laughs> thief there That's to pretty steal ballsy. it, right? Yep, I would think so. At this point, all officers on deck, and they go out and they try to find the missing police cruiser. Two hours after the search was launched, an officer radios in to say he's located patrol car 321. And while he's still on the radio, shots ring out. It's Officer Matt Owens, and they are shooting at him. Ooh. Officers race to the scene. When they arrive, the patrol car is there with lights on, but no sound. So the lights are, you know, going on. No sound. No siren. Whatever you call that thing. And no sirens. <laughs> sirens. Whatever you call that thing. That thing that pulls you over. The thing that I see in my rearview mirror every once in a while. The lights. The Yeah. Yeah. Yes. The officers on scene, they can't find Matt Owens, Officer Owens. They can't find him. So they're screaming for him and they're like, oh, wow, did, did, was he abducted? Was he taken by force? Is he dead? Like, we got to look around here. So they're screaming for him. Is for he the him. murderer? Yeah. So out of, out of the darkness, he comes with his gun drawn and he tells his fellow officers slash coworkers that he was ambushed and he took cover uh -huh. behind the building and he was not able to get a good look at who it was or where they went. Uh-huh. Officers search throughout the night and are unable to locate anyone. Once again, they fly Was in somebody. Was there really anyone, though? Come on. Once again, they fly in somebody from the Alaska Bureau of Investigation to come on in, take a look at the crime scene, see what happens, right? Right away, she makes a mm, bizarre, strange, unusual, however you want to say it, discovery. The patrol car's window had been shattered in from the outside. It had been, you know, because the glass breaks and it comes out either on the inside or the outside. And we know that because my car was busted in when we went to the Chicago podcast, leaving all the glass on the inside, right, mm -hmm. versus the outside. So she goes in there and she finds a large manila envelope. Hmm. Inside the envelope was Sonia Ivanov's pool pass, swimming pool pass, you know, like a YMCA pass. Right. Now, what po the police officer had not, the investigating police officers had not revealed to the public or the press, which is a tiny little newspaper that I think still sells for 50 cents a piece. Kid you not. That's if you're fun. from Nome, let me know. But they had not revealed that Sonia's pool pass was, in fact, missing. So at this point, they're like, okay, this has to be the killer because they had, whoever had her pool pass has now stolen a police car and putting it in the police car, right? So it's looking more and more like the killer is the one that also took the police car. The killer, Jen, was also nice enough to leave a little note for investigators. Oh, that's sweet. Isn't it? It really is, except it's not. Okay. Hopefully it's handwritten and they can do some kind of analysis no. of it. It was typed. However, it was enlightening. So the note said basically this. It said that the person who stole the car was, in fact, Sonia's killer. And that these stupid police officers, I'm paraphrasing here, it's so easy to steal this police car from them. And then it also mentioned in parentheses, I hate pigs. I hate cops. All right. So the letter writer referred to 
police officers as pigs. It also stated that Sonia was simply at the wrong place at the wrong time, and this killer simply wanted to see if he could kill somebody, if he could kill somebody and get away with it. And he did it. He did kill her, and so far he's gotten away with it. And he wrapped it up by saying that he would kill anyone that came after him. Back off. Stop looking for me. You're not going to get me. And if you do, I'm going to come after you and your family, basically. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. So the police officers are like, great, you know, because there's, what, seven of them, give or take. So a criminal profile is pulled in to look at the note. One giant red flag jumps out to him about the note. Now, do you want to know what that might be? You want to take a guess? He's a narcissist? Pretty much. Maybe. The profiler said that the fact that this person used the words pigs to describe police officers was merely a tactic to get investigators to not suspect it was a police officer, which Mm. means that is exactly who they should suspect did this brutal, awful murder. Huh. The two officers on duty that night, as I'd stated before, are sent to Anchorage to take those long overdue polygraph tests before, you know, that one, the patrol car was stolen. Car 54, where are you? (laughs) So before it was stolen, right? Car 321. Car 321. Thanks for listening. Very good, Jim. So one of the officers up first is Uh Paul Sousa. And Paul is going to pass this polygraph test with flying colors. Now, mind you, I guess if you think about it, maybe police officers have been around this a lot. Maybe they could rig it. Maybe they could pass it and not have to take it. But in any case, Paul Souza, he passed it with flying colors. Hmm. Next up, Jen, is Officer Matt Owens. Mm-hmm. Oh, wait, no, he's not. He failed to get on the airplane because, Jen, he was just so traumatized over the whole patrol car stolen thing, right? Oh, yeah, poor guy. So he never even made it down there. But, you know, not that the police chief is thinking about it, But he seems to recall that Officer Owens seems to be all over this whole investigation. So, for instance, it was Officer Owens who took the missing person's report from Sonia's roommate. It was Officer Owens who volunteered to stay overnight and watch the crime scene. It was also Officer Owens who was the one who found the stolen patrol car and was mysteriously shot at by people he never could get a good look at as he took cover. Hmm. Something's not adding up, Jen. A little fishy there. On October 25th, 2003, Officer Matthew Clay Owens was arrested for the murder of Sonia Ivanov. News of the arrest spread like wildfire, and with it came phone calls, and lots of phone calls. Native women from around the area called in saying Owens, he was, let's see, not a nice guy. They were uh, saying that Owens would pick them up, force them to have sex, and then drop them off, telling them, quote, 
no one will believe a drunk Indian. So feel free to report me, basically. (laughs) But he did. He did say no one will believe a drunk Indian. That's a quote. What an asshole. So in particular, six women stated that Officer Owens was assaulting them for over two years with threats that if they didn't comply, they would be arrested. As Officer Owens is sitting in custody, the prosecution starts to build a case, but there's a few, well, actually, there's more than a few glaring errors. The tire tracks do not match any patrol car or Owens' personal truck. The blue paint is not a match for any of the cars either. Owens' police-issued gun was a forty-five Glock, and Sonia was killed with a thirty-two. if you remember. Mm-hmm. What investigators need to do is find the vehicle that made those tire prints on that muddy road then. So they start combing through parking lots all around town and looking for a blue automobile. And when they find the blue automobile, they look at all the tires to see if, you know, there's three that match and one not. Lo and behold, a couple hours later, they locate a truck and it is a blue truck. And yep, it has three different tires and one that doesn't match the other three. The paint's even a match, right? So the only problem is, is that the truck does not belong to Officer Owens at all. The truck belongs to a local junk dealer, and he comes out to talk to them, and he denies having anything to do with Sonia's murder. He tells them that, in fact, that day, he and his girlfriend had come to Nome from their hometown to have lunch, and he even has a receipt to back up his story. Now, he did say on the way home, because I think it was like a 70-mile drive, 50-mile drive, his girlfriend had to go to the bathroom. And, you know, it's Alaska. So he just pulls into this dirt road, pulls over, lets her go party. Or our hometown. That's kind of what happens. Exactly. Yeah. So pulled over, let her go to the bathroom. She gets in the car. He goes up, turns around, and drives out of there. He did mention it was raining. It had rained all day. They did check with the weather center to make sure, and it had been raining, so it was muddy. The police are like, really? Your truck went in, hit the branch, drove through the mud, drove through the blood, and you don't have anything to do with Sonia. Uh, Again, like that's a major coincidence. Am I right? Mm, I would think so. Yeah. But they go, they check it out. And it's true that it did rain all day. They went back and looked at the photos of Sonia at the crime scene. She had leaves and debris on her, which they believed that the rain had placed on her before they discovered her. You know, the rain had washed dirt and debris on her, making her a little bit more difficult to see. And all of this lines up with everything that this guy's telling them, right? They pulled over this girlfriend went to the bathroom. Right. I mean, it's, again, strange. It's a tiny town that all this could happen. It could happen, but it's, yeah. So they're kind of a little wishy-washy with that, thinking, okay, okay. Well, investigators began to dive into Officer Owens a little bit more. And they are able to locate a woman that he was very, very, what do you call it, casually dating over that summer. And she says that she was dating him, very casual, not serious at all, but that he suggested that they go camping the week after Sonia was found murdered. They went to a cabin that was outside of town. And that night, he stayed outside late burning things in a fire pit. Huh. So and she said, you know, she didn't think much about it until she heard he was arrested. (laughs) And then it all kind of made sense. Right. Uh huh. So police head up to the cabin and basically it's going to be like, yeah, right. Are we going to find anything in a fire pit after all this time? Probably not. So they travel up to the cabin and they locate the fire pit. And this pit 
was going to be pay dirt for them, Jen. Literally. They dig through the dirt. They don't even have to dig that deep. And they locate Sonia's belt buckle, the metal from her bra, and the eyelets from her, her sneakers that she was wearing. Okay? Yeah. The, okay. This is all. the. So he basically was burning all of her stuff up there. Exactly. That's what he was doing, right? At this point, officers have him. They know they have him. But he still maintains, he's the wrong guy. You guys got the wrong guy. I didn't do it. Okay, so now they have to build pretty much what they think happened, their theory, okay? Investigators think that Owens picked up Sonia that night and offered her a ride home. It was raining. It was August, so it wasn't that cold, but it is Alaska. I'm sure, you know, drizzly. Now, unlike some of the other women that Owens had picked up in the middle of the night, Sonia was not drunk. She was also a young, strong athlete. She also was not going to cooperate with his stupid little do this or arrest you thing, right? She was well known in the town. People knew her. They liked her. They knew her so much that she was seen about town. The witnesses are. They knew her. People knew her. They also knew she was well liked, that she would not lie about any of this. And he knew that too. So as he's threatening her, investigators think that she was just like, you know, uh uh, this is not going to happen. If you touch me, I will tell everybody. Well, then, of course, he starts panicking because he knows that she isn't the usual kind of, you know, bar She's not going to stand for it. Yeah. Yeah. And that she will go and they will believe him. He'll lose his job. He'll lose everything that he's been working for. And so he was like, no, this is not, I can't allow this to happen. At this point, he drove her out to that dirt road. He made her get out of the car with a gun pulled on her. They think that she, he had her stand in front of him and he drew his weapon put it to the back of her head, and fired the bullet through her head, killing her. Execution style, pretty much. Yes. Yes. Bastard. She fell to the ground. That's why the blood pooled in the tire track, right? It kind of congealed by the time the junk dealer guy goes through it the next afternoon. But then he dragged her through the weeds, through the brush. And once he got there, being a police officer, he knew that he had to definitely get rid of all the evidence. So he stripped her down. Now, he's also a firearms expert. That was kind of his specialty in the police force. And so he also had access to lots and lots of guns. But he knew how to cover his tracks and make sure to leave no evidence behind. Matthew Owens was charged in October of 2003 on first-degree murder and tampering with evidence in the death of Sonia Ivanov. In January 2005, Prosecutor Richard Svoboni said in a Nome Superior Court that Owens committed the murder and later staged the theft of a patrol vehicle where a note addressed to the police was found, while his defense attorney, James McComas, argued that there were others who should have been looked at, like other members of the police department or some friends. And I kind of laughed at that because I was like, there's seven of them. (laughs) There's seven officers. One's the police chief. Not that he didn't do it. So that takes you down to six, right? And one is just involved a lot in this and he seems to kind of be and what do we know from like all the criminal shows that we've ever watched the one Mm -hmm. the person that places themselves mostly within the investigation is usually Mm -hmm. the best Mm -hmm. suspect so (laughs) that's exactly that trial surprisingly ended with a hung jury really but again a lot of this evidence wasn't you know it was kind of dare i say circumstantial but it wasn't it wasn't a for sure thing So a second trial began on October 17th, 2005, and on December 6th, 2005, 
The jury found Matthew Owens guilty of murder in the first degree and also guilty of tampering with evidence. Owens received a sentence of 101 years. And I need to point out here that the Sonia Ivanov law was passed by the Alaska legislature in 2007. So something good did come out of this case. The law mandates that a police officer convicted of committing murder while on duty be sentenced to a minimum of 99 years in prison. Oh, wow. So that's, that's good, that's, I think. Yeah, I think that's a great law, to now, be honest. Ever so not wanting to say you're guilty. In March 2010, um, the Alaska Court of Appeals upheld Owen's conviction. You know, they, they appealed it, of course. And the Alaska Supreme Court denied Owen's petition for a new hearing on September 30th, 2010. He had filed a petition with the court saying he wanted his conviction overturned because he was claiming that he had ineffective counsel. Okay. During the second trial, not the first one, not the one that was, you know, resulted in a hung jury, but the second one in which he was convicted. Of course, thanks goodness, the judge was like, nope, and denied it. So he still sits in jail, prison, rather. Mm -hmm. So if you can, I think I'm going to put this at the end of our sources for this because, and I can't find it, and I couldn't find it when I was writing this, and it makes me mad. But when I first heard about this case, which was probably about two years ago, I was, you know, cruising the internet, and I found he, Matthew Owens, he got a hold of a computer and he, he was maintaining his innocence and all this stuff. And I, I went down that rabbit hole for hours and I could not for the life of me find it today to, to put this at the end here. But I, I'll try to put that on, on our uh, sources if you, you know, if you <laughs> spit it out. You know Get what I'm it. saying? You can do it. I know. If I you're interested and you want to look uh, it yeah. up, Camille yeah. will have it posted under our sources. Yes. In and so, show notes and on our website, which is www.ourtruecrimepodcast.com. Exactly. And lastly, let me just say that sometimes there wasn't, there, I mean, there was no hard, solid evidence to say, dude, you did this. I mean, the cars didn't match. The tire tracks didn't match. He had no blood on him, except they did see her get into a police car. So that's that's one bad thing. But that could have been somebody else, you know? Right. It, could, it, it could have, could have. Been a could have been a different day. The witnesses could have been wrong. But I think the fact that other women had called in and had reported maybe to the neglect of the police department that he had abused them, that he had assaulted them. Also, that those witnesses that saw her that night reported it. And I believe it took seven weeks for them to follow up on that because they were mm -hmm. going after Donnie. Right. And that's the whole thing. If they didn't have forensics, I mean, think about it. Her best friend has a crush on her. One of her good friends has a crush on her. His friends cannot testify that he was with them all night. He has a blue car. He has uh -huh. blood all over everything. They did not have testing. He would be sitting in prison. He right? would be. For mm -hmm. sure. Then let's say he didn't. Then the, the poor junk dealer guy with his girlfriend, he would be sitting in prison because his car went through that congealed blood and got right. on his car. Right. So I just think I just always think about old cases and how many people probably really did go to prison and did not do it. Yeah. You know, it's because sad, there was nothing it? to to positively prove that they didn't do it. And you know, I'm sure with the police officers, and we all know that there's bad cops and there's good cops, and mm -hmm. we're not even going to go in to discuss that. But I think it would be really hard to have all this evidence of, especially with a police department of only seven mm -hmm. people. 
And you think you know that person really well and you start mm-hmm. getting all these calls saying that this person isn't who you think it is. I think mm-hmm. it would be hard to wrap your head around it. So well, it's like if you got calls about me or I got calls about you. It's oh, just I get like, calls about you all the time. Oh, you'd be quiet. And it I believe count. every single word. Because I know it's true. No, but after a while, I get what you're saying. I mean, after a while, you would just think, well, maybe there is something to this. Maybe Mm -hmm. there is another side. Plus, I have to say, if this took place in, say, Anchorage or a bigger community in Alaska or anywhere for that matter, he probably would have gotten away scot-free because, like, say, if there was a police department of, say, 300, they could never have pinpointed it to him. But solely because there was only seven, it got whittled. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? This guy would have gotten away with it. And I guarantee if he was, th- th- you can see that this was, you know, he'd pull over and threaten these women and have sex with them. And so it was, it was going to end up in murder one day. And he probably would have been a serial killer who would have kept doing this, right? Because right. he was getting mm-hmm. away with it. So, yeah. So he still maintains case. his uh, innocence there in jail. Well, what but, do you yeah. think? Do you think he really did it? Oh, he totally did it. Yeah. That's what... It, like, like I'm not huge on the circumstantial evidence, but there's no, more I'm than just, circumstantial I'm, evidence now. Why would he agree to watch to stay with the body that night? Okay, that's odd. That's fine. Taking the missing persons report, whatever. There's seven of them. I mean, one of them had to do it. But the police car stolen and that he was there? I mean, come on. Mm-hmm. You know, come on. So, yeah. Yep. That's all I got for Good you case. in that case. I like it. Just I was attracted to this just because it was terrible, always. But that uh, uh, something good did kind of come out of it. That there was a law passed, and just so sad, and just so young. She was so young, had her whole life ahead of her, you know. Mm-hmm. It's and, very sad. Yeah, and she was probably going places too. Yeah, just terrible. People are jerks. They are they, jerks. They really are. I don't like a lot of them. But I like you, dear listeners. (laughs) (laughs) She's lying. Uh, All right. So that's it. What else you got going on, Jen? What what, what Um, else? Not much. We are coming up on Thanksgiving. And then after Thanksgiving, we are doing the what? 12 Nightmares Before Christmas. I know. So make sure everybody stays tuned for that. You get, you don't think, you think you, you like us, wait till you get 12 days and crispy (laughs) starlit nights of gin and cam coming to you from our closet and basement. And just remember that since we have to push these out so quickly that they're not as deeply researched as some of our past episodes there. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of tend to look for a simpler, not simpler, but just a little bit. You know that I, I I can do a shortened version, and you're going to understand what happened. I usually try to do ones that are less complicated than all the other ones, or stuff that there's hardly any information on. Like I'm doing one that's from Australia. That's not Australia. a lot. Yeah, there's a fun little twist at the end. I'm doing one from South Wales, one from Maine, one from oh gosh, I forget the rest of them, but mm-hmm. they should be fun. I got short you. little ones. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good. I can't wait. Do we have a Very promo fun. this week, Jen? Jen, we do. We have one that I'm really excited. It's a brand new podcast coming out on November 23rd. It Woo. is by our friends Emily from Morbidology and Eileen from Crime Lapse. They are also going to be with us at CrimeCon UK. So make sure you get tickets using the code OTCP. 
But anyway, I digress. Their newest podcast is going to be called The Shattered Window. And I've been hearing bits and pieces about this and everything that they put into it. And it's going to be phenomenal. I'm excited I for it. I can't wait. I can't wait. So make sure you listen to that. And as always, listen to our promos at the end of the show. Not promos. What am I talking about? Oh, bloopers. Yes. <laughs> bloopers. Make, and there, there's a blooper right there for you. Yeah. Uh-huh. There's a couple doozies in here. Sorry about that. Not yeah. awake or I can't talk today. I don't know. Something's I don't know. Wrong. I'm discombobulated too. So Yes, totally. All right. It. Well, okay. So, hey, hey Jen. Hey, yeah. hey Jen. Hey, hey, Remember, hey, lock your doors. And keep passing by those open windows. Uh, bye-bye. Love ya. Today's episode was researched and written by me, Cam. For more information about this episode, as well as all the sources I used, please check out our show notes or the podcast website at ourtruecrimepodcast.com. Our True Crime Podcast is developed and created by hosts Jen and Cam. Original music and audio mix of all our True Crime Podcast episodes is courtesy of Nico Bertese from We Talk of Dreams. Listener discretion is provided by Edward October from October Pod VHS. Our True Crime Podcast is executive produced by Nico Vertese and Dick Bain. Make sure to like and subscribe to Our True Crime Podcast wherever you listen to your podcast. We can be reached on Instagram and Facebook at Our True Crime Podcast or on Twitter at Our True Crime Pod. You can email us at Our True Crime Podcast at gmail.com. If you really like the show, make sure to check out our Patreon at Our True Crime Podcast. Our True Crime Podcast is an OTC production. So the police launch, so, 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 that's my other word I choose all the time. Segway, so, hello. They call in the Alaska Bureau of Investigation, who would send a criminal, criminal, I give up, I'm out, I'm done. And scene. In with the butterflies, out with the bees. Out with you the murder hornet bees that kill people. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and that she was then um, probably uh, pulled through the brush area. It's a lot of us. I know, because I, I didn't, I'm not reading it as I wrote it. I'm sorry. And I'm trying not to say drug. Okay, that's the truth. I didn't want to say that she was drugged through the brush. She was dragged. She was I dragged. Know, you know me, Jen. And now I'm going to say drug because, because it's, it's a point to prove. Just saying. Okay. Kidding. Okay. Here we go. Okay. Hopefully it's handwritten and they can do some kind of analysis no. of it. Analysis. Analysis. The murder of Jacqueline DeWallaby is a tragedy that has puzzled and polarized the minds of those who know it. Over the past six months, we've extensively investigated this case trawling through files, trial transcripts, and archives, and have been conducting interviews with the people who lived through it. It was a sensational, startling fact that a seven-year-old little girl had shown up missing from a suburban home. Something like that happening would have never crossed our parents' minds. The notion that a stranger can slip into a child's bedroom in the middle of the night, completely undetected, is surely a notion that every single parent on this earth fears. But what's even more lamentable is knowing that a child killer is roaming the street, and even more chilling, 
They could be someone you know. Hosted by Emily G. Thompson and Eileen McFarlane, this is The Shattered Window.